turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. Continue our series on the book of Romans. Today we'll be focusing our attention in the sermon on Romans 1, 18 to 32. We're going to take this section in two parts. Today I'm going to describe some of the, the general principles that Paul is laying out for us. And then next week we'll look at some of the particular sins that he mentions in this section. For our reading we're going to read verses 16 to 32. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. 
in this section, Paul begins to do what he is so eager to do, and that is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. The word gospel, as we've talked about and as you know, means God's good news for us. But in order to get to the, the good news of the gospel, he begins in an unexpected way in verse 18. He presents some very bad news. He informs the, uh, he's pr pr predominantly speaking to the Gentile believers at this point, but he, he presents to them this information that they are under God's wrath, for the wrath of God is revealed. We are under divine judicial punishment. Paul doesn't shy away from that. That's the starting line of his gospel presentation. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Now, I want you to, to notice something about the structure of Paul's letter. Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed. Now, turn with me to chapter 3, verse 21. And notice the connection in language of what Paul is doing. So from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20, he's describing why God's wrath is against Gentiles and Jews. But then in verse 21 of chapter 3, look at how he shifts. He moves from saying, for the wrath of God is revealed, to verse 21 of chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God was revealed, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. But now the good news, chapter 3, verse 21, the righteousness of God for these people that I've just been describing in these last chapters is going to be revealed. So we're going to have a couple of weeks focusing on the bad news, and when we get to 321, then uh, gospel good news comes to us. Now, this is a very important aspect of Paul's message, one that we should never neglect. Why? Well, it explains our need for Jesus Christ. Why do we need a Savior? What's wrong with us? Why, why are, what, what position are we in to need Jesus? It explains why we need His atoning death, why we need Him to go to the cross and pay a penalty for something that we have done. It describes why we need a righteousness that's apart from the law, apart from anything we can contribute, a righteousness that is gifted to us by faith. It explains our perilous predicament. And Paul, uh, Paul's diagnosis is very alarming. Think of Paul here as a physician of the soul, diagnosing a spiritual problem in us. Doctors often use uh, tools like CAT scans and MRIs to reveal 
problems that are hidden below the surface. You can't see them in a physical examination. You need to look at uh, the internal uh, organs in the body to pick up on some of these problems. Well, Paul is doing something similar. He, together with the Holy Spirit, is examining the human heart and exposing our rebellion against God. Here we find a powerful condemnation of fallen human nature that we all inherit from our forefather and mother, Adam and Eve. Now, what do we do with this? We sin, but we are by nature sinners. We can't help but do the things that Paul describes in this text. The fix is not do better. The fix is die to the old man and be raised to something new. Did you notice that in Colossians? We talked a little bit about that last time, but in the reading of Colossians, have you picked up on how big of a theme this is in Paul's thought? If, he says in Colossians 3.1, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Who are you? You've died to the old person. You've been raised to something new. Now, in the Bible, our God is described as a being who is just, pure justice, who is righteous and good. And therefore, Paul is at pains to defend God's wrath against unrighteousness. He wants, it's as if he's in a courtroom showing us why we are under a death penalty, why God's wrath is against us. He wants to point out our spiritual rebellion against the Lord of creation. We're going to look at this text under two headings. First, a foolish exchange. And second, God's vengeance. A foolish, foolish exchange. And second, God's vengeance. A foolish exchange. And here Paul shows... Uh, what humans, predominantly Gentiles, have done to God to stir up His judicial wrath against them. There's two ways of denying the one true God that Paul picks up on here. And the first is this, one that we're seeing on the rise in, in our country and in the Western world more than it probably has been in, in a long time. And that's the, of, the fallacy of atheism. We can deny God by denying the fact that He even exists. We, we call ourselves atheists. I can't see God, so therefore why on earth would I want to believe in God? How foolish of you Christians to, to say, can, can you prove it to me? Prove to me that God did the things that you say He did. Oh, you can't? Okay, well, then I'll continue along the path that I'm going in the rebellion of my heart. Now listen to what Paul says. It's kind of shocking. When you engage with somebody who says, well, I don't believe in God at all, do you ever say, you know that there's a God. Quit playing around. You know. You, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. You're just lying to yourself. You know. We're almost scared to do that, aren't we? 
That's what Paul does. And he even does that when he's dealing with these great Greek philosophers in Athens. You guys know, come on, quit playing games with me. You believe what I believe. You're just suppressing it. You're pushing it down. You're acting as if it's not true. Look at what he says. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see how he describes it? It's not that, that the truth isn't there. It's not that the argument isn't clear enough. He says the issue is moral. It's not intellectual. It's not that the facts aren't there. It's that you choose not to believe them. That's his argument. Pretty shocking. Then he goes on in verse 19. For what can be known about God is what? What can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So creation itself is the proof, the undeniable proof that God exists. You have to deny yourself, and some philosophers have attempted that. Well, existence is just a figment of our imagination. How foolish is that? Deny the world that you live in. You have to deny all of these things that you see and experience around you to deny God. And nobody has done that. God has revealed Himself plainly and clearly even though He is unseen, He is the invisible God, Paul says here. Yet He is known by His works. Paul approaches the, the Gentile God-haters with nature, with creation. We're doing a, a Sunday school class on origins. Paul thinks that these things are pretty important. They're bedrock foundational principles. And when Paul brings the gospel to unbelievers, to pagans, to Gentiles, he usually starts with creation. Go look at Acts 17 when he's in Athens. It's creation. Now we're going to find him start referring to the Mosaic Law when he deals with the Jews. They're without excuse because they have the law. They have all of this knowledge of God, and yet they don't follow it. Now, it is, it is a common form of reasoning among humans to analyze a work of creation, an artwork, a piece of music, um, whatever you want to put in that category, to analyze a work of creation and reason back to the source of that creation. We see something that is beautiful and organized, a work, and we, we immediately start to move in a, a rational way back to the source, to the Creator. It's undeniable that we operate in that way. We do it all the time. And this is simply Paul's argument. We know God from His works. How many of you have heard of the 
London-based graffiti artist named Banksy. Anybody heard of Banksy? Some of you have. If you haven't, go check him out. Now, he made himself known in the Bristol, Bristol, England, underground arts and music scene back in the, the 1990s. His art has been seen on walls and sides of houses and buildings in London, in New York City, in Los Angeles, in the Israeli West Bank, in Australia, all over the world. His works have been auctioned at Sotheby's Auction House in London for millions of dollars. So this is, this is a guy that's well known. Yet the interesting thing about Banksy, no one knows who he is. No one has seen him at work. All we have is the work itself. How many of you know the, the piece of art where there's a little girl, she's kind of in grayscale, black and white, and she's holding a, a red balloon? You seen that? Okay, that's Banksy. He did that. No one knows him. He's anonymous. Nobody can tell us who he is. Yet only a fool would deny his existence, right? We, we can see artists now can examine works and say, oh, that's a Banksy. We know that because we, it, it fits his form. We, we can reason back to the Creator. His works are clear proof of his existence. And that's undeniable as humans. Nobody says, well, I wonder how that, I wonder if a, 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 a paint truck was driving by the, this building one day and had a wreck and all this paint just splattered this beautiful picture of this, woman, this girl holding a red balloon. Wouldn't you think that guy is out of his mind? And yet we do that with creation, which is far more sophisticated far more beautiful and glorious than anything Banksy ever did. How illogical, how irrational, how foolish, Paul says, for us not to reason back from the beauty of creation back to a being who is powerful and righteous and holy, and wise, and good. We do it all the time. Now, Paul also speaks here in verse 21 of the, the evidence of the, that denial. For although they knew God, He never, he never get, lets them off the hook and says, God hasn't made Himself clear to you. You know God. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So it is, it is reasonable to expect when we behold the beauty of the world around us. How many of you enjoyed this fall weather? That's beautiful. How many of you enjoy the, the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon or the Blue Ridge Mountains or a lake, whatever? It's beautiful. Who made this? 
How many of you enjoy, like, the, the ships, a, a, a young life, a baby? It's so sophisticated. We've been studying scientists and doctors have been studying the human body for since the world was created, and we still haven't plunged the depths of it. There's still things that, that are too sophisticated for us. Paul says, the mark of our denial of God is that we don't honor Him, that means worship Him, and we don't give thanks to Him. Because it's perfectly reasonable for us to look around the created realm, reason our way back to God, and then give Him the credit that is rightfully due to Him. God is Creator gives and sustains life. It's only reasonable for the creature to respond with worship and with gratitude. I think there's a lesson we can learn here from the Pixar movie Ratatouille. How many of you have seen Ratatouille? Pretty, pretty well watched movie. Uh, pretty clever in the title of the, the movie, because it gives away what the movie's about. Um, it's about a rat who cooks splendid French cuisine. So the title is Rat Atouille, a French dish. The story, uh, the storyline, the plot line, introduces us to a busboy who takes out trash at this famous French restaurant. His name is Alfredo Linguini. Uh, they must have a lot of fun making these names up for these animated movies. They're very clever. But this busboy, he rises to stardom for these delicious French foods that he cooks. There's a whole lot more to it. I don't want to ruin it if you haven't seen it, but go watch it. It's a great family-friendly show. He makes this splendid food and gets all the credit for it, but behind the scenes we know that, that the rat is doing all the cooking. The rat is the master chef doing it all. The truth comes out near the end. When a famous French food critic, again love the names, Anton Ego, he comes and visits the restaurant. And uh, he, he eats this dish at the end, it's ratatouille, and it just, he, he's got his pen, he's ready to write his critical notes. He takes a bite and it's so beautiful and so delicious that he drops his pen on the floor. And he wants to give compliments to the chef and he thinks that it's the boy, Alfredo Linguini, who's also serving his table. And, and at that point in the show, Linguini says, no, it's, it's not me. I'm not the... I don't deserve the credit. I'm not the chef. There's another diner, uh, person eating in the diner that night, and he says this. I think it fits in with what Paul's saying. The, the food is so splendid. This diner says, who cooked the ratatouille? I demand to know. And the chef critic said, I want to meet the chef. And his reason was this, he says, who do I thank for the meal? Who do I thank for the meal? We want to give appropriate gratitude to someone who has done something, who has created something so beautiful. Compliments to the chef is 
the way we put it. So, even in popular art, Banksy and a, a, an animated movie, the things that Paul's are operating on, the, the principles that he, say, that he says the Gentile world uses to deny God, we, we use those things all the time. We reason back from a work of creation back to the Creator, and we always want to give thanks and honor to the one who has done something splendid. And there's nothing greater than the work of the universe in which we live. Nothing excels that. The second way of denying God is the foolishness of idolatry. Verse 22, he says that they were claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, there's that element of just denying that God exists and created, which is totally foolish, illogical, irrational. And then equally illogical and irrational is to take God's work and attribute it to creatures themselves, which is idolatry, transferring the works of God to a creature. On a human level, we have all kinds of laws to protect a person's work being credited to another person. Plagiarism, intellectual property theft, copyright laws. All of these things show that we as humans understand the principle Paul's talking about. You don't give credit for a work to a person who hasn't done that work. There is something detestable and immoral about that. Now, here's the, the, the interesting thing about idolatry. <clears throat> On what rational grounds do humans, and people have done this throughout the history of, of the human race, attribute the works of God to other humans or to animals? What's the rational? Surely it makes a whole lot more sense to do what we as Christians do, to attribute those works to this unknown, unseen, all-powerful, eternal being than an, a cow, or a human being, or a bird, or a cat. Doesn't that just make sense? I think we, we all affirm that. That's just self-evident truth. In Isaiah 44, verses 14 to 17, the prophet Isaiah just makes fun of the whole concept of idols. He says, let me, let me just ridicule the Canaanite nations a little bit for you. They take a piece of wood craftsman out in the fields finds a piece of wood. And he decides to carve his God out of it, a wooden image of God. And then he takes the rest of this material that God exists from, and he uses it to start a fire, to cook his food, and to warm himself. Isaiah says, how foolish 
must we be? How distorted must our mind be? How serious must we be on suppressing truth if we start to create idols? The Greek gods, who the Romans would have been familiar with, are majority of them are man-like. And what a mess man is. How, how good do human beings, how good are human beings at much of, of anything? We seem to make a mess out of so much. The Egyptian gods, they base theirs on animals, birds, and cats. I remember it was an eerie experience. Have, have you ever been to the British Museum in London? There are all of these stuffed birds. But the weird thing is the cats, the stuffed cats. Why did they stuff the cats? Because they believed the cats were gods. I like dogs and I don't like cats. I could never live in Egypt during those days. If it was dogs, that may have been more tempting. But cats, it's just ridiculous. These things, Paul says, are mortal. They're frail and fragile. Oh look, honey, we believe in the possum god and he got ran over on the road again. I mean, really, it's that foolish. That's how, that's, I think you're kind of getting the feel for what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 44. He's like, come on, man. Do you really think that way? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Mortal, mortality, decay, death, frailty. Who wants that to be their God? You stand on the logical high ground as Christians. We believe our God is something so great and so big that you cannot even grasp Him. That logically makes a lot of sense, to be fair. There's this illogical exchange that has gone on in Romans. And I want you to notice the, 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 this word exchange. It's used three times. In verse 22, he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Then in verse 26, or in verse, excuse me, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creatures rather than the Creator. And then lastly, dealing with the moral issue, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural, what, what in creation God's purpose was for their bodies, they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to what is natural. The foolish exchange. We have this world that we logically can reason back to be created by this splendid, majestic being, powerful being, and we say, no, we don't want that. We're going to go back to the store and exchange it for something far, far less. That's Paul's argument. We made a choice to take truth and exchange it for a lie. 
to take the all-powerful God and exchange it for either atheism or for idol idolatry. And that's why you're under the wrath and curse of the Creator. And that's fair enough for Him to be angry. Second thing Paul speaks of, and it'll be a briefer point, and that's God's vengeance. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, or all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Why is the human heart described by the theologian John Calvin as an idol factory? Why do we look anywhere but to the God of the Bible to form our deities? Why do we exchange the truth of God for a lie? If we acknowledge the self-evident truth about God as our Creator, as an eternal, all-powerful being who is just, right, and good, if we acknowledge that, then we must give Him honor, we must worship Him, we must be in total dependence on Him, and subject ourselves to His wise rule. The reason we willingly act illogically and irrationally, the reason we take the lie over the truth, is because we do not want God's lordship over our lives. Adam and Eve, what was the problem? What, was, what were they tempted to by the serpent? If you eat, you will be like God. And that's our, that is the fundamental base sin problem. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We get to make up what's right and wrong. We get to determine how to live our lives. We want to be masters of our own universe. That's it. And we can't believe in this God if we want to be masters of our own universe. So let's just pull the wool over our own eyes and pretend He doesn't exist. The driving force behind human suppression of truth Human willingness to deny the obvious is our rebellion to His Lordship. We want to be God. We want control over our lives. We want to determine moral right and wrong. We want to be our own Lord and King. When God the Creator is denied, then what we see is that the natural order becomes distorted. And we're going to look at this in, in more detail, especially the, the lesbian activity and the homosexual activity that we see in Romans chapter 1. It's equally irrational and, Ill, and illogical. It defies biology, what's going on. It is clearly unnatural. And what's going on in our country? 
why are we seeing a return to some of these practices? What, what we have in Romans 1 is a, a pretty good commentary, cultural analysis of the Western world today. What's the issue? You see, it's not the moral issue. It's the denial of God issue. That leads to the moral. Once we deny the Creator, then we start to distort His creation. The two things, in Paul's mind, fit hand and glove. Robert Gagnon, in his book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, writes the following about Romans 1, 8-32. He says that, that it shows how sin runs amok, particularly among idol worshipers, and explains why God is fully justified in judging them. Now let me ask you a question. Are human beings under the wrath of God? Paul says they are. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. When you think of God's judgment, His wrath, what comes to mind? To me, it's the great flood. God is angry with the people during the time period of Noah. They're full of violence and all types of sin, and He brings the floodwaters upon them. That's God's wrath being made manifest. Maybe Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone flying down from the heavens to destroy sinful people. We look on an immoral and a godless society and we wait to see when God will unleash His fury. Are you doing that about America today? When is God going to deal with this problem? What you don't realize is He is dealing with the problem. His wrath is unleashed right now with what's going on in our world. There's, a, there's two key words. There's the exchange which reflects the, the human act that brings about God's judgment. And then there's another word that's used three times in this text, uh, another series of words, God gave them up, which de describes His response to our exchange of truth for a lie. God gave them up. Look at verse 24, 26, and 28. Therefore, because they exchange truth of God for a lie and start to worship the creature rather than the Creator, verse 24 says, Therefore, because of their idolatry, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God allows them to pursue life in rebellion to Him. That's His wrath. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for, that, uh, for, for those that are contrary to nature, nature. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Wrath is God giving people up to their own sinful desires. Saying, you don't want me? You want a world apart from me? Okay. Go get it. 
Go have it. Go see what that's like. Go enjoy reveling in your dysfunction. Go be miserable because you want it. That's what God is doing here. He gives them up. It's contrary to what believers experience and what Jim Scholl preached on last week. You remember the Lord's Prayer? Part of the Lord's Prayer, and lead us not into temptation. Oh Lord, please don't give us up. Don't give us to those things that we know are sinful and expressions of our rebellious nature. Please, as believers in You, as those who haven't denied Your existence as Creator, don't give us up to the desires of our flesh. Protect us. We need a hedge of protection around us, as Jim talked about. It is a mercy and a grace of God to shield us from sin. And in societies where godliness and righteousness is upheld, you notice God hedging those societies from some of the sins we're talking about here. When those things are denied, He opens the floodgates. God, God's wrath is revealed in that He removes the hedge of protection. Giving us over to our sinful desires is a serious form of divine judgment. Like the grumbling and complaining of the Israelites in the wilderness. They were sick and tired of the bread from heaven. We want meat. We enjoyed meat in Egypt. Give us meat. And in Numbers 11, the Lord stirs up a wind and He brings quail into the camp that are stacked up three feet high. And this is what the Lord says, The Lord will give you meat to eat. You shall not eat for one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a month, until it comes out your nostrils. You want meat? You're going to have so much meat that you are going to be sick of it. You want immorality. You want these things. I'm going to give it to you. And you're going to regret every minute of it. You're going to be so miserable. Now, to sum things up, what do we do? You know, we see uh, very clearly that some things are going on in our country. I lived for nine years in Wales, and it was no different there. The Western world is coming unhinged and unglued. The reason it's coming unhinged and unglued is it's denying the existence of God. It's idolatry. Humans are in a perilous position, Paul argues. We exchange the God of creation for dead, useless idols. We exchange moral standards of nature or of the natural order for our own morality. It is a destructive way of life. But Paul says, at the end of the bad news, I've got good news. That even these people that I'm defining and describing here, such were some of you, Roman Gentile Christians. You repented. And you turned, you came back to your senses as a work of God's grace in your life. There's some encouragement for us in this section of Scripture. 
I think it's easy when you look at America today to get discouraged, to focus on the negative, to think, oh my goodness, what kind of world are my children going to grow up in? What kind of world are my grandchildren going to grow up in? But let me remind you, that is a similar world to what Paul, the apostle, ministered the gospel to. And the gospel thrived. The gospel thrived. Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God? You'll see it more in our culture, in a dark, fallen culture. When God takes the homosexual and their lesbian, brings the gospel of grace into their hearts, they turn away from that to Him. They put away what they exchange and they take God back. They put away the immorality and they take His Ten Commandments back into their lives. That is a demonstration of power. Do you believe the gospel is the only remedy? Paul knows that. And that's why he says in verse 16, and I want this to be an encouragement to you. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, even those described in Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word to us, uh, a very powerful, direct critique of fallen human nature in the Gentile world of Paul's day, one that looks very similar to what we experience in a post-Christian West. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not lose hope, but it would actually encourage us to say, look, this is fertile ground for the seed of the gospel to be planted and for the power of God to be demonstrated. O oh Lord, help us to champion the gospel in this culture in which we live. Amen.